powered by Sports Interaction, Canada's Sportsbook. Welcome to Game Over Montreal. Let's start it out like we did a lot last year. It's another Montreal Canadiens loss. We'll do a throwback because it felt like a Dominic Ducharme coached game out there today. The worst performance of the season for the Montreal Canadiens by far. From the outset, I mean, obviously, two goals when the ice is still shiny. The team wasn't focused. Uh, the goalie wasn't focused. I, thought, I think this was probably Jake Allen's worst game of the year. But uh, it wasn't all on Jake Allen. The entire team was pretty much terrible. And even in the first period where it seemed like they took control for a bit, that was mostly due to having the power plays. So Montreal Canadiens really were lucky that the score was as close as it was. Uh, those six power plays, yeah, the, the Sabres got themselves in trouble. I don't think it was necessarily the Canadians forcing them into things. This was a, a full-on stinker. It was not great. But with that said, this show is here for you to get your catharsis. So we're going to yell about this game a little bit. We'll probably not yell. I've got two kids asleep. But we're going to talk about this game and, uh, you know, look at the few tiny little positives if we can and... Then we'll talk about prospects to cleanse your palate a little bit and look forward to, you know, tomorrow when maybe they'll play a little bit better to a couple seasons from now when maybe this team is a little bit better. And games like this aren't something that you have to fear, at least uh, not very often. Uh, I have a great guest with me tonight. It's uh, Mitch Brown. But before we get to that, we have to say, uh, I think you know the way it's going to go. I think, thought it was going to be a loss tonight because I saw Craig Anderson was starting, and it seems like anytime Craig Anderson is starting against the Canadians, it's a loss, but he wasn't really the difference tonight, let's be honest. Make your bet with Sports Interaction. Whether it's World Cup, hockey, football, or basketball, Sports Interaction has you covered. Bet pregame, live in play, or on one of our many prop bets. Sports Interaction makes it easy to deposit, play, and cash out. Join now and see all that sports betting has to offer. Want to bet? Head to sportsinteraction.com slash sdpn. That's sportsinteraction.com slash sdpn. 19 plus. Please play responsibly. And as always, if you or one of your loved ones or anybody that you know has issues with gambling addiction, there are resources in the description of this video or in the podcast description if you're listening to it the next morning to help you find your way out. All right. I am going to welcome my guest in today. It's a fan favorite. One of the smartest people in the game. Mitch Brown. How you doing, Mitch? Oh, hold on one sec, Mitch. I think you're muted. I'm just going to fix that. It's having to do all these Zooms with different people. So before we get too far into it, and I screw up uh, a whole segment, there we go. Now you should have levels and you should be able to talk. I'm bored. There this, we go. This game was just boring. It was just boring. And it was good for boring. Tage Thompson for putting on a show in a little bit. Good for Jeff Skinner. Uh, J.J. Paterka had some really fun moments in that game. Notice that I'm not really mentioning any Montreal Canadiens. <laughs> it was a it was a pretty boring game. Yeah, it was not great. Uh, one team was very hungry. You could tell they lost eight straight, but it was uh, it was an ugly performance from Montreal Canadiens. Even like you could scrape out and say, oh, you know, Cole Caulfield scored and he maintained his 50 goal pace, but the goal he scored was, you know, it was just a, a weak goal. I mean, good on him for taking the shot, but I don't know. That's not really like the snipe job Cole Caulfield goal that you want to see, right? It was just a, 
a chance shot from the point. It was a pretty cool shot, though. Like, he had mm-hmm. the little crossover setup adjusting to it. Like, that's the type of goal you would expect to see Caulfield get every now and then. I thought it was pretty fun. But how about how about as soon as the very first Sabres goal was really just a sign of things to come, right? Because, because Darlene gets ahead of both Caulfield and Suzuki. Neither of them make an effort. And then it's a four-on-three going the other way. And then Tage Thompson does the whole being way better than everyone else thing. Sets up, sets up him with a drop pass, goes in the back of the net. And that was kind of just the way the rest of the game went. You know, the second goal, I think it was Gooley who ended up turning the puck over. It wasn't really his fault. They just, he didn't have any support. But then he chased up high and then there was like a two-on-one in front of the Canadians net. And then Allen also didn't do a great job. And then the 3 nothing goal, it was Savard who loses a stick in the corner. And then him and Dvorak combined to become the rare own man double screen in front of Jake <laughs> Allen in the shooting lane. So it was just one of those games where everything just kind of goes wrong. Any any minor mistake gets amplified because it goes instantaneously into the back of the net. Yeah, it was it was not fun. I mean, I'm sure Sabres fans had fun, right? I know uh, Kay in the chat was saying for a game with seven goals, it wasn't even exciting. I w- I'm assuming that it was a lot more exciting for Sabres fans, but... For for from the Montreal Canadiens perspective, there was not a lot to, a lot to write home about tonight. I'm assuming that based on the turnaround to ter- tomorrow in Columbus, they pay, they basically take this game and throw it in the trash for now and try to go right back out there and and give a better effort because like there's too much garbage to go through on film to be able to turn that around in one day. These are NHLers, right? All of, they all know what went wrong in this game. They all know their mistakes, everything like that. This isn't a massive systematic failure by any stretch of the imagination. It's a bunch of little things that went into the back of the net and then in general a lack of focus. You know, they get paid big money to be focused. And, you know, it'll they'll they'll bounce back in a way that probably won't lead to them being a five hundred team. But they'll have good games, they'll have bad games, they'll get blown out on occasion, and Cole Caulfield and Nick Suzuki will blow out other teams single-handedly every now and then down the stretch. Not every game's going to be fun, and that's just the way that it works when you're a team that has a talent deficit and is trying to play a style that is more suited for today's high pace, high offense NHL. Yeah, 100%. And I know that people were kind of down on uh, some of the defensemen tonight, uh... Uh, I saw Jordan Harris really getting it in in the comments uh, on Twitter there, but uh, man, I don't. I find it difficult to pick out any single person, <laughs> to be honest, because I I think everybody really struggled. Uh, maybe not. I mean, even Sean Monahan. I feel like he had some moments where he wasn't paying attention to the defensive zone. Like, there's nobody really on the on the roster tonight that I looked at and said, "Hey, this guy had a great performance." It's unfortunate because you want to bring. Like for this kind of show, what I know from last year is you've got to bring something to the table to get people <laughs> happy because you can't you can't just hammer them all the time. It's not fun. And at the end of the day, what we're here to do is ha- to have fun, to learn a little bit, and uh, at the end of the day, feel a little bit better before our head hits the pillow. But there was not a lot in this game that uh, stood out in a positive way. I will say... I think I'm done with the Matheson-Edmondson pairing. I don't know why <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, St. Louis is stuck with that for a second night. I feel like he's trying to give everybody space to 
to get their feet under them, like the guys that are coming back from being out or or struggling to produce guys like that, Dodonov. But the Edmondson Matheson thing, like Edmondson is so like he's struggling so much with focus and like mental mistakes. And then you put him with Matheson, who's still coming back from like eight weeks off. It just doesn't make much sense. And Matheson, I thought looked better tonight, but there was one play where I think it was like the end of the first period where he just full on forgot to skate back into the, into the defensive zone and allowed the Sabres to beat out a, a very easy to beat out icing. And then they had the puck for like 90 seconds, just dominant <clears throat> and it's stuff like that. that. Is, that's Mike Matheson though. That's what he does when he's healthy and he's been lined up for months. That's Mike Matheson. He's the bringer of chaos. He is the guy <laughs> who gets dangled around in spectacular fashion, like he did in the second period in this game. And then also dangles around someone in spectacular fashion. He activates off the point, does cool things, and then makes the most brain-dead play that you have ever seen from a defenseman making that much money and playing that many minutes. That's his game. He, and it's it's amazing, and it's it's super fun to watch. And, like, from, like, a scouting and, and an, an analyst perspective, it's, it's, it's awesome. Like, that's you like those kind of players because they make the job more entertaining. Um, but, yeah, that's what he does. He's always been like that. And you go back, you watch him in college. That was his game to a T. Some things never change. He's shored up a lot of little elements, but you know, you you thrive with Matheson and you die with Matheson. That's how it goes when he's on the team. It the he had one shift in the third period, I think, that really sums up his game I so far. And it is on the power play. And I think he made the mistake at the point, like he tried to shoot and it kind of went off a shin, exited the zone, and Tage Thompson went on like a, a, a one-on-one break, but he stuck with him, skated really well, took the puck away, and then started to rush the other way, made this like really dangerous looking zone entry, and then just held on too long. And Thompson came back, took the puck from him, and then got like a breakaway the other way. And you're like, come on, like there's more players on the ice, you guys. You don't have to just keep it between the two of you, but uh, <laughs> Matheson is, uh, is wild. Canadians fans obviously haven't seen him that much so far. So I, I guess we don't really know what to expect from him overall, but uh, yeah, he doesn't look, there was a comment here from, from, I think it was Kay saying that he doesn't look ready for first pairing minutes yet. I don't think anybody on this team is ready <laughs> for first pairing minutes. Like, that's kind of the issue. I like, okay. Shout out to Caden Gooley. I thought he had a pretty reasonably good game in spurts. There was a couple plays in the first period where he got in, inside position on the guy won the battle, and then instead of throwing the puck off the glass and out, he took the second to look to the middle and then started a clean breakout. He also nearly killed a Buffalo Sabre, which was the classic Caden Gooley thing. And we also continue to see Caden Gooley really grow offensively. Like Even in a game like this, he's passing down low and then sprinting straight down the middle to get the puck back in the offensive end. Like You were watching him develop and add new plays to his game while he's playing huge minutes against top competition in the NHL as a rookie, like that he's able to do this is so, so impressive to me, especially given all the narratives that were around him when he was drafted. Oh, they're just picking him because he's big and he hits. And, you know, it was never really true, but it's so cool to see his development just occur at like warp speed in the NHL in this role on a team like this. Yeah, it, it, it is fun seeing him add like the mean streak that he's known for the last few games here. He's been a lot more physical trying to get guys. And I, I do think his the penalty that he took was not a penalty to me. It, it didn't seem late, that hit. 
at the blue line there. I, th- I thought he lined up the guy pretty well. Uh, whereas I know that uh, Dave Poulin was saying that the Edmondson penalty in the third period wasn't a penalty, but I think that was pretty clear interference, honestly. Yeah, it was it was uh it was pretty blatant. The Gooley one, I think, like I would call that, but you also have to remember like my perspective is junior hockey and like right. that's kind of the hockey that I'm watching all the time. And in the WHL they wouldn't normally call that, but in the OHL you could get a couple games for that because you can't do any head contact and you can't hit someone when they're not looking at the play. So yeah, I don't I don't know. I like I it was a minor penalty, I thought. And I also thought, you know, if Gooley really wanted to just annihilate the guy, he probably could have stepped into him more. Yeah. And he probably took a little bit off that one just to be certain. And then, of course, the whole scuffle happens. He throws that guy to the ice. Like, um, yeah, he, you know, it's, it's Caden Gooley. This is what he does. He took a little while to get comfortable handling the puck before he decided he was going to start being the murderer that he was known as in the WHL. So full credit to him. Yeah, trying to navigate to who you can bully and who you can't bully and and when are the times that you can unleash that big hit and still stay in position. He's definitely one of the guys who continues to make progress, right? I think that uh, Harris has had a little bit more of a rough stretch the last week or two where I don't know if I would have scratched him as, as St. Louis did just because the other option, I feel like Jack has actually struggled more. And I definitely wouldn't be pulling Kovacevic out of the lineup right now. I feel like he's been probably their second best defenseman overall this season. So I understand that there's like he, uh, the coaching staff has spoken to the young defenseman and told them like there's going to be a rotation here, and you know you're going to get in games, but you're also going to miss games, and they all seem to be okay with it. I feel like uh, Gooley is not part of that group though. I feel like he, even though he's the youngest one, he's not going to be rotated out. But uh, I would like to see Harris and Kovacevic stay in the lineup as much as possible down the stretch. And I know it's probably not the best strategy for keeping the value high for, you know, trade deadline. But I feel like you could load manage Edmondson and Savard a little bit because they're the ones who seem to be making the biggest mistakes. And Savard is valiant of a job as he's done this year being the best David Savard that he can be at his age. Uh, You know, we talked before about the value that he brings in a purely defensive perspective that maybe isn't captured by, you know, public models where, you know, he just gets that little bit of body or stick in front of a shot that puts things off to an edge or, or uh, like his defensive positioning is just really good in certain situations, but two to three times a game, David Savard is amazing at turning a nothing play into a something play for the opposing team. And yeah. that is just not great. He he has major uh, grenade handling sometimes. Like yep. he and him and Gooley kind of exchange it back and forth. Gooley would be like, oh, I don't like this. I'm just going to throw it to Savard. And then Savard's like, man, I, you know I, I can't do this. And then Savard <laughs> just like hucks it straight to the other team. Um, it's an interesting dynamic between those two, it seems like. Um it's, is it is it unreasonable to say that Gooley is, for better or worse, the team's number one defenseman? Like, yeah, he's the guy who does everything. Yeah, competently, like more competently than anyone else does at this stage. You know, it doesn't always show up statistically, but I think in terms of like just pure competency in all areas of the game, he might be the best of their big minute players right now. Yeah, I mean that's. I think when you look at 
what he's capable of doing and the arc of his career, there's no one that's going to pass him in that respect. Like I would assume that this year <clears throat> on a like per game basis, Matheson will probably get more minutes just based on how uh, St. Louis is relying on him already. And uh, seems to be getting on the power play already. Uh, but overall, like Gooley is very much destined to be the first pairing guy that they, you know, hopefully they can find somebody who fits in there with him that would take it to, from like a decent first pairing to a good first pairing. But uh, he's in that slot, right? Like we can say, you're trying to fill slots and you're doing a rebuild, right? And you've got like the Suzuki Caulfield slots and then you don't know if the dock is going to fit into the center slot or the wing slot looking like wing right now. But Gooley is certainly locked in on that first pair for now. It, it would it would be quite the feat, I think, for him to be unseated. Yeah, and there's a lot of defensive help incoming with the Montreal Canadiens, and we're going to see a lot more experimentation over the next couple of years to kind of see where everyone fits, who fits together. And, you know, there is a certain small defenseman who seems to be a pretty good fit with Caden Gooley in the next few years. Lane Hudson and him would seem that they would have some good chemistry, a good meshing of styles, perhaps. That's a great point, Mitch. And that'll lead into the positive side of talking about the Montreal Canadiens <laughs> right now. We're going to ignore this game for the rest of the show. We've talked about it enough. It doesn't deserve to be talked about it anymore. But before we get into the prospects, I have to tell everyone here, uh, thanks for being here on a game like tonight. I know that it's just looking at how the numbers work for this show and for other shows for the Maple Leafs. When they lose, numbers through the roof. Everybody wants to come together and yell. But after last season, I think it has a lot to do with last season. And all that losing, when the Canadians lose, we don't have as many people in here. People don't want to talk about losses. They want to talk about wins. They want to talk about things going well. So we'll talk about the prospects. But before we do, remember, if you're here and you like the show, hit the like button because it helps us out. We've been getting killed by the YouTube algorithm lately. For whatever reason, it doesn't want to show game over stuff all around people who are fans of these teams so help us out drop a like and if you really like the show hit that share button on youtube and share it to your favorite social media your social media of choice get everybody that you know to come in and hang out with us because how could it be any better more people it's more fun can read the chat have some fun all right so now that we've got that out of the way and the shameless self-promotion uh, let's talk about some prospects. Lane Hudson. Um, I don't remember if it was you I talked to before, Mitch, but uh, Hudson and Gooley are both lefties, right? So who would you have move over if they were to be paired together? Well, the natural one would be Hudson is more skilled with the puck, so you would put him on the other side. But then you remember Gooley skating, his defensive skating, his instincts. So... It might work with Gooley on the other side as well. And on top of that, you know, there's a lot of natural flexibility there with the way the Montreal Canadiens play the game now. It's not as simple as left guy stays on the left side of the ice the entire time, right guy stays on the right side. There's a lot of crisscrossing, moving back and forth, a lot of activation. And so defensemen are always coming back into their natural sides. And of course, when you have someone like Adam Nicholas and the rest of the player development staff, they're going to find ways to make players more effective in every position of the ice. The defenders are going to get better at playing the half wall, you know, uh, just by the skills that he's teaching them. And it's going to be the same for anyone in any position. They're moving towards positionalist hockey. And so I think that's going to be less of an emphasis by the time Lane Hudson gets to the NHL. 
And I know, uh, like, Lane Hudson has, you know, that ridiculous offensive instinct and transition ability. Like, the skill is off the charts. But there are some issues that he needs to work on to get to the NHL, right? Like, I've heard... Obviously, I don't have the chance to watch him game in and game out. Uh, I don't want to... Like, my main thing is, I want to, whenever I talk about prospects, I defer to somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. I never want to present myself as an expert because it'd be dishonest. But I'm talking to other people. They say that he has some issues with pivoting. Do you see any progress with that this year? So, let's. I, I think I want to tie that into like a broader discussion of his skating because I don't think the pivoting itself is a massive issue or I don't think it's something that specifically you need to target to fix it. Lane Hudson right now is not, I guess, an NHL skater. Can he get there and will it and will he need to get there are the two questions I think. And the first thing is, yes, he absolutely can get there. He's like, what, 155 pounds? Like he's going to add weight. He's going to get stronger. That's going to make his stance deeper, more powerful. He's going to get more explosive. And the stride's always going to be a little weird. It's always going to be a little wonky to watch, but that's partly body composition. You look at the NHL, there are so many different strides that have success in the NHL. A lot of it just comes down to being strong and explosive. And then these players can make it work. Like Trevor Zegras, stride, looks ugly, doesn't have any issue finding space in the NHL whatsoever. So I think as you get stronger, his depth is going to improve. He's going to become even more elusive. The pivots will improve. The stride will improve. He's going to get faster. Now, how long that takes, I don't know. I mean, that's why I'm a dude who's sitting on a computer here talking to you <laughs> instead of, you know, actually telling Lane Hudson how to improve his skating. Now, <laughs> and then the other part of it is, does he need to have skating as a massive advantage or whatever to play in the NHL? And I don't think he does. He's very deceptive, oftentimes through like more subtle ways than you see from, say, Nick Suzuki. Nick Suzuki likes to do that thing where he slows up, he freezes everyone with a really long, drawn-out fake, and then he makes that laser beam precision pass to Cole Caulfield. We've seen him do it a million times. Lane Hudson is more like quick weight shift one way, quick weight shift another way, like turning his body in a million different directions at once. He's overloading defenders with so much different information. And so he will be able to play in the NHL without being, you know, so-called super explosive or having that dynamic speed or whatever. I don't think that's going to be a huge challenge for him. Now, Hudson, of course, does like say the skating is more mechanical and then you have to start trying to address like specific skating areas and defensively it's messy. I think breakouts are still messy. They've really improved, mind you. He's more patient now, but um, his skating doesn't always have his skating, I guess, doesn't find the same level of separation without the puck than it does with the puck, because with the puck, he's able to create those advantages without it. He's his actions are a response to what his opponents are doing. Right. And so as a smaller defenseman, you have to take control of what your opponents are doing. Adam Fox is really good at this. He gets on the player as soon as possible. He, he drives them to the middle. You know, it's the early gap control. He gets all those stops at the red line. Lane Hudson doesn't do that yet. And so that's going to be, for me, Lane Hudson, it's it's going to be natural skating growth, and it's going to be finding ways that he can better use his current assets to make the NHL. Playing that tighter gap, playing a game that's more focused on changing pace on breakouts and stuff like that. And, of course, just letting him eat offensively, letting him run free, letting him do his thing. Because – 
he doesn't rely on set patterns or set plays like a lot of players do. He's just endlessly creative. And that in itself is like such an innate advantage. We saw it in this game. Like look at Rasmus Dahlin in this game. He had such a huge advantage over everyone because he's so innately creative. Look at uh, Nick Suzuki. He has huge advantages over other players in the NHL because he can just come up with solutions to things that other players would like never even conceive of that they don't have, they wouldn't even be able to think of in the moment, let alone have to, let alone have the ability to react to it. So Hudson is going to be one of the most fascinating development projects I think we have seen in hockey. And like, I'm very optimistic about his NHL future now watching it. Like, there's I track a lot of data and I've tracked a lot of games on him and like he's doing stuff that right now is a playmaker that only four other defensemen have done in college in the last few years. Adam Fox, Quinn Hughes or five, I guess, Scott Prunovich, Sean Behrens and Kale McCarr. Like these are all like these are all guys, guys like these are real players. Sean Behrens is more of a prospect, same with Prunovich, but both of those players could make the NHL and be top four options. So. Yeah, I mean, I think people should be really excited about Lane Hudson, the potential that he has going forward. It just might take a little bit longer than we're used to seeing from guys who um, get top prospect hype. So yeah. that was a really long answer, but no. I just I just love this stuff. But <laughs> it's a good answer, though. You have like there's questions here asking, uh, like, what is it about his skating? And I feel like you answered that. Um Obviously, casing. I really, 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 really hope he works out. I think everybody in the Montreal <laughs> Canadiens, both staff and fan base, really, really hope that he works out because he's the kind of guy that, if he works out, it's a home run, right? Yeah. Lane Hudson's not going to make the NHL and be like a twenty-point defenseman. <laughs> it's it's going to be a completely different thing than what we've seen before. And I know I I don't remember if it was you who pointed it out, Mitch, on on Twitter, but he's doing this over a point per game production in the NCAA right now on the second wave power play. Like he's not actually eh. getting the primo minutes. Well, you could argue that BU's second power play unit is better than their first. Oh, like, okay. Forwards well. wise. And like the difference in terms of how much they're going out there is only like 20 seconds per game or whatever. Okay. So like, like it's not a, it's not a pronounced difference. And he he's leads the team right now by like 40 seconds or something and even strength ice time as well. It's so like, well, he's listed on the second pair and like he's essentially for all intents and purposes playing top pair in minutes. Well, I, I think that's good to know uh, as an 18 year old in the NCAA. I feel like it's pretty rare for a young defenseman who's, you know, not that big to get first pairing minutes essentially at even strength on a college team. And I feel like yeah. the college schedule is probably the best thing for him, right? Where he has these uh, like little issues that he needs to work on with his skating. He needs to like build up a little bit of NHL size. It seems like this is the perfect situation for him where the Canadians can afford to slow roll him a little. Absolutely. Give him, you know, he has the weeks, the week, the weekdays to train, weekends to get in games. And then, of course, you have what is largely a much shorter season. So there's going to be more time for him to go over video with the development staff during the week before and after his games. He's going to have more energy throughout the summer to get into his training and so on. So, yeah, it's a perfect fit for him. The college route is always a great route. And for him, it's no different. Now, now it sounds like I'm now it sounds like I'm trying to sell people on NCAA <laughs> hockey. Well, I mean, there's good fits for different players, right? I think that's right. the the big takeaway from development paths is like not everybody needs the same path. Some people need extra time in the weight room and, and more time between games, a more scholastic approach. 
And I know, speaking of Scholastic, we're going to have to talk about uh, Owen Beck, but <laughs> uh, Rock Smasher in the chat is saying that uh, Josh Waugh, five-point night tonight, he had a little bit of a, not a skid, but like just based on his own level of production last year and early this year, he wasn't producing as much for a couple weeks there. But uh, all of a sudden, insane levels of production from Joshua Waugh. How is he progressing this season? It seems like he's putting more emphasis on playmaking. He's about the same player as he was last year. But yes, he's definitely trying to pass more. I don't think that's a... Like, last year, he was a dump and chase player who then, once his team secures possession, he really comes alive. And this season, he's trying to make more controlled plays, usually through his teammates, rather than dumping it in himself and getting it. And then in the offensive zone, you see him using the threat of a shot a little bit more uh, to open up a little bit of space. But I don't think he's taken like a massive step mechanically or physically or decision making wise. Like his production is incredible. And there are a lot of really interesting qualities about him. Again, he's this puck retriever, shooter, playmaker hybrid that you don't really see a ton of. Um, So... I don't know if the production uh, aligns with what his ultimate NHL upside is going to be. I think he's probably more of like a third line type scorer, and just the mechanics mean that there's a chance he might not make it to that rate. But again, like Lane Hudson, he's another player who is just so fascinating to watch, right? Because you see these point totals and you're like, he must be just electrifying. And then you watch him and you're like, he dumped the puck in 15 times in one game. <laughs> like, <laughs> so it, it, he's he's a really cool player in a lot of different ways and i think um this season especially with like having ethan gauthier on his line who's a top prospect for the 2023 nhl draft and justin gill it's they're kind of forcing him to be more of a distributor because they have more shooting skill than he's used to playing with so ideally you could trade him to a team in the ohl or the whl but I think the, I think he's making enough progress given his current situation. So have you seen? I know we talked last year about like his his big issue that I I think was uh, like transitioning to pro hockey was because he was able to score from basically doing whatever he wanted. That he yeah. was a li- not lazy. Lazy is the wrong term, but he was satisfied with what he could do to just rip up the queue. And at times, like, didn't use his teammates very well. Are you seeing improvement in that area? Are you seeing, like, a little bit of diversification in his offense? Or not quite yet? A tiny little bit. A tiny little bit for the reasons that I laid out. And just for context here, like, scoring in junior and scoring in the NHL are two very different things. If you have, say, a slightly above average, like, shot by NHL standards, you can just stand from the top of the circle in junior and score 30 goals. Like, yeah. it's nothing. And uh, one area where you were generally the average OHLer shoots or the average CHLer shoots 6%, guys like Walk and shoot 18, 20% from there. And they won't be able to do that in the NHL. So for guys like Walk, it's really important to be able to take a puck from the boards or take a puck from where you would normally shoot and get that extra meter or two closer to the inside, whether you're passing to a teammate who then shoots or bring it in yourself. And I haven't seen that yet from him, specifically the creating more space and opportunity for his shot, which is something that Owen Beck has gotten a lot better at. Um, but I have seen a little bit more playmaking from him, which I think, again, it's not as significant as I would have liked to see this year, but it is enough that I don't think we can say that he's stagnating. 
Right, right. And I feel like he's another one that the Gaudi Jr. numbers, a lot of people expect, like... Actually, you know what? I feel like the fan base is generally relatively reasonable about Joshua Watt, probably because he's not, like, a, a first-round draft pick. But despite the Gaudi numbers, he's not a guy who's going to jump out of junior straight into the NHL next year. He's a guy who's probably going to spend a couple or even three seasons in the American Hockey League after this one to get his game to a place where he's a good NHL player. And that's fine. Like people can be okay with that. Like that, that's what makes sense for him developmentally. Yeah. And that would be a great outcome. If he makes the NHL, he was a late rounder. He still has many qualities that don't suggest a great NHL or anytime soon. And then he's going to go into a situation where development seems to be going really great. He's going to go to a team that can hopefully recapture some of their magic uh, that they had last year. And, you know, I think I think it should work out for him. It just might be a little bit more drawn out. And to go back to that, Montreal Canadiens fans are actually like like way above average in terms of like their expectations for prospects and the type of information oh, sure. they want to hear about prospects. You know, you sometimes you tweet stuff out and people are like, oh, but he's like five foot eight. It's like, yeah, so I don't care that he's like five foot eight. I don't I, I like, why does this matter? Why does this matter that much? And Montreal Canadiens fans are like very interested into like the sort of the little things that they do that separate junior players from NHLers. And I think that's why it makes having discussions about players like Joshua Law so engaging. Absolutely. Now, speaking of the little plays that separate guys, let's talk about Owen Beck because one of the smartest players at his age, especially that I've ever seen. And I've only seen him a handful of times. He seems to be having a fantastic breakout year in the OHL after having like, he was, he had okay numbers last year, but nothing that jumped off the page. And you wanted to see him put up really strong offensive numbers along with his like incredible faceoffs and defensive skills. And, you know, like, all around the ice, except for necessarily translating directly to goals. This year, it's translating directly to goals. Uh, how, how have you seen Owen Beck this year? Well, I mean, he's Owen Beck. He's phenomenal. Like, everything <laughs> this guy does is amazing. He's every single shift, he has a play. When you watch the, when, when I go from watching a junior hockey game to watching an NHL game, the biggest difference is that in junior games, most players have a few shifts where they do something interesting. Like Connor McDavid, I just watched a bunch of his draft year tape. Three to five shifts a game. They were just absurd compared to everyone else's, right? Because it's Connor McDavid. And that's how the vast majority of players work. Owen Beck is way more detail-oriented than we're, than we're used to seeing from junior players. And so every single shift has something. Has a really good read down low to get open. Has a really good way that he wins a battle, seals off back pressure, starts the breakout. Has a really good play where he creates an advantage for his teammate by drawing pressure and then passing through it. And something that I alluded to earlier is his shot. He's He he always had an NHL shot. Like this is something that people have been talking about with Beck going back to, uh, going back to his uh, AAA years. But he's much better at creating space for a shot now he had a goal against barry that was a great example and a goal fairly recent recently where he steps into the shooting lane the defender reaches in and then he kind of pump fakes goes around then shoots around them in the nhl getting space for your shot is at a premium it's not just because it's you know defenders close space but it's also goalies goalies are hard to beat you need to fake them out you need to move the puck around before you shoot so then they don't know where it's coming from 
And Owen Beck is really starting to figure that out. And what makes Beck what makes Beck even more impressive is that like he's taken another step defensively. He still doesn't have particularly high quality of line mates. If Beck had high quality of line mates, the man would have scored 80 points last year. And he still doesn't. And he's almost, I think he has 14 goals in 17 games. And this yep. is a guy who was a playmaker. So it's extremely it's extremely exciting to watch him. And then you just consider the context around what he's doing. It's very impressive. He's always been an intelligent player, but you see him starting to weed out the untranslatable plays, the stuff that he won't be able to do in the NHL. And like, you watch me like, this guy is an NHLer in junior. And it is amazing to watch. It's truly one of the most enjoyable experiences in the entirety of the CHL right now. And that's like the kind of thing that I think Canadians fans get so excited about a player like this because it almost like I know it's not can't miss because if you're a can't miss prospect, you're really like a top five pick. And even then, yeah. there's there's still busts. But because Beck is so detail oriented and so good at so many things, it just seems like no matter what he turns into, there's an NHL there, NHLer there in some role, right? And like exactly. the, the floor is extremely high. And maybe the the ceiling isn't extremely high. Like you're not talking about a future first line center in the NHL, perhaps, but it's not super low either. Like he, he's that rare pick where, you know, you see often NHL teams go for like in outside of the first round, like the high floor, low ceiling guys, where he's like high floor, medium ceiling, if that makes sense. Well, even even then, like we continue to see new layers to his game all the time. Like as I was just talking about creating space for his own shot and you add in the playmaking skill and you add in the development staff that the Montreal Canadiens have. I, I just watched, sorry, I keep bringing that up, but I just watched that video of Adam Nicholas and I was like, man, Same. I want to go out on the ice right now. <laughs> I want to do that thing that Pateri Nurmi did. I'm going to have, I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't drink coffee. I'm going to drink some coffee and just have that plane in the background of, Oh, what a weapon. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I really, you know, I think Beck is improving at such a rate that it's probably like, it's not fair to put a cap on his ceiling at this point. I think probability wise, he's still probably a mid six guy, but I don't think it's fair to turn around and be like, Oh, you know, he's, he's never going to play top line. It's like, Man, first off, if I could do that, I'd be making a lot of money in this industry. <laughs> but second thing is, at the rate he's improving, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to be the guy who's going out here saying uh, you, that Owen oh, Beck's going to use his motivation to prove wrong, to prove wrong. You know, so yeah, I think I've, I really like his development, and I think he's like, you know, if he doesn't make the NHL in some capacity, I will be. I'll just quit. That's I'll go I'll go back to being a line cook. <laughs> All scouting becomes bullshit. Nothing yeah. matters. The points don't matter. Everything's made up. Yeah. Yeah. It would be absolutely wild at this rate just to see like how much he's progressed, how quickly like how many facets his game has. It it is incredible uh watching Beck play. Now, obviously uh the idea of of Beck joining the team next year is like very enticing for people who just want to see him up close. But would, would you say because of how long he stuck around in training camp this year and how like his rate of uh, improvement is so severe, severe is the wrong word, but the good kind of severe, uh, yeah. there is a chance of him actually pushing his way into the lineup next year. Cause I'm assuming that, <clears throat> sorry, Sean Monahan will probably be gone. 
Uh, and, you know, Christian Dvorak maybe as well. So there's going to be a spots up the middle. Yeah, I think there's I think there's a real chance that he makes it or at least gets a lengthy look. Um, of course, making the NHL first doesn't guarantee future. I mean, I just look at True. back at Blake Spears, who had a bit of a similar profile, you know, well-rounded, detail-oriented player, made the NHL in his D plus two, and then never really became a full-time NHLer in any significance after that. And Beck is more skilled than Blake Spears. And of course, there are other factors. It's not as simple as a player just busting for the sake of busting. There are so many things that go on off and on ice that dictate this. Coaches make decisions that impact players' careers forever and so on. But um, yeah, Beck is uh, Beck is pretty clearly, uh, to me, a confident NHL projection. And a guy who, as soon as next year could be in the NHL and not get cratered, whether he'll be good or not remains to be seen, but don't think he'll get killed if he's playing a fourth line role or whatever. Yeah. hundred percent. All right. Uh, last guy that we're going to bug you about, uh, Philip Misar, who came into the NHL and took everything over by storm or not OHL. OHL. Sorry. I think I said NHL there, uh, crazy hot start, changed things a lot for, for his team, but has slowed down a little bit. <clears throat> is there anything to worry about with Philip Misar, or is this just, you know, sometimes things don't go your way? Well, the only thing you have to worry about is an inflated expectations, right? People think that any guy who plays professional hockey in Europe is going to come in and destroy. It's like Oscar Ullison played in the SHL. He was below a point per game. Philip Philip Lucelle played in the SHL was 1.17 points per game, uh, which is the same as Misar's right now. So it is not a guarantee that pro experience leads to scoring. And I think that sending him to Kitchener was the right call. There are a lot of things that he needs to get better at. Going to the OHL is a great place to do it. It's not just that he you know, has the tools to destroy the O because he doesn't have the tools. You can have all the tools and you still won't be able to destroy the O. You need to know how to use them. You need to know how to get to the inside, how to create advantages with your skill set. And for Mashar, that's still a learning process. And I think Kitchener, where there's a good top end on the team. They play a competitive schedule against great teams. And of course they have a great facility and their rink has fantastic food. If I must say both media room and, and on the concourse too. Fantastic. But it, it's a great environment for him to be in. I, I really think, and it's the right place. Of course, his production was never going to be, what was it at? Like 3.5 points per game or whatever. He was never going to do that. But I think right around what he's doing now is probably what we're going to see the rest of the way, around 1.2 points per game to close up the season, hit maybe 80, 85, and 60 games, 65 games, 68 games, bring it into the playoffs, and that'll be considered a win. And then we can turn, then he can turn pro next year, get into the development system a little bit more in Laval, and presumably continue his upward ascent. All right, great. I mean... I think he looked so electrifying in moments during the preseason that people expected him to be, you know, two points per game in the OHL, but it's very difficult to maintain a base like that. Yeah. Even if you played pro hockey before that, uh, I, I think people underestimate how, like, it's a grind just like any season, right? Except for you're sitting on a bus between games instead of flying in a, a chartered plane like in the NHL. All right, before I let you go, Mitch, I'm going to ask you, uh, just quickly, I know that we didn't discuss them beforehand, but just a couple Canadians prospects that nobody really seems to be talking about in junior, sure. but are still putting up decent numbers. Who of these three do you think has the best chance of becoming an NHL or between Riley Kidney, 
Jared Davidson, who nobody ever really talks about, but has 23 points in 13 games for the Seattle Thunderbirds, and Vinzez Rohrer. Oh, Rohrer, easy. Yeah, yeah? E- easy one. Davidson is old, and the tools aren't super great. Uh, Riley Kidney, tools aren't super great, has some decision-making issues. He's kind of similar to Wall in the sense that, he, you know, he win he creates and scores through doing stuff that isn't necessarily going to work in the NHL. Vincennes Rohr is like 165 pounds of pure violence. He's gotten better at getting to the inside. His playmaking has taken a big step and defensively, he's just a monster. And there's nothing better than watching this like 5'11", 165 pound guy, like reverse hit some six foot two monster into the corner. Like it's nothing. Yeah. This guy, this guy's great. He's going to play. He's going to be awesome to watch. So I, from that, I'm guessing that uh, Roar is going to be a fan favorite right away when the fans get to see him a little bit up close. Oh, man, the next time the 67s are on national television, he's going to be a fan favorite. <laughs> he plays the most. He plays one of the most fan friendly styles you've ever seen. And on top of that, like the skill has taken a big step up this year. And like, I don't know. He's not going to be a play driver in the NHL. I don't think that's going to happen. Who knows? Maybe. But I don't think that's likely. I think more likely he's a good, solid fourth liner who brings the violence, brings a bit of fun, brings some flashiness and doesn't get killed, uh, you know, on the underlines because he knows how to play defense and he knows how to keep the puck up his own end. Awesome. All right. I hope everyone who's tuned in tonight has something positive from this talk (laughs) that helps them sleep a little bit better because I know it can get emotional watching your team lose seven to two to a team that just lost eight straight, (laughs) but somebody had to lose to the Buffalo Sabres eventually and it was the Montreal Canadiens. So they're back at it tomorrow night against the Columbus Blue Jackets. They're going to try to avenge what they did to Sam Montembeau in the last game. You know, dominating that game against the Blue Jackets, but giving up the most ridiculous scoring chances possible, which seems to be what this Canadiens team kind of likes to do. When, when they're at their best, they dominate territorially and then just give up the most crazy scoring chances two-on-ones, two-on-nuns, you know, giveaways to the front of the net, all that kind of stuff. So it's hard on the goalies, but uh, hopefully they win one for Monty after giving them a tough sled last time around. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks, Mitch, for coming on with me here. And uh, obviously, we'll be right back at it tomorrow night. Before we close it out, Mitch, tell everybody where they can find your work. You can head to epringside.com, get a subscription there. Black Friday's coming up. We're going to have a big sale. And you can follow me on Twitter at Mitchell Brown. And then go to our YouTube page. I just published a 16-minute video on how Kale McCarr became the NHL's most dynamic defenseman. I went all the way back to the AJHL. And David St. Louis got cool videos breaking down the non-Bedard prospects of the 2023 draft that you might want to check out if you're feeling like you need a little bit of hope. (laughs) There you go. All right, everybody, follow Mitch Brown. And if you really like him, Go support his work on his Patreon as well. There will be a link in the description here. He does great work. Work that you can't find anywhere else. Thanks for tuning in. It was fun chatting with you all tonight. And uh, hopefully we get to talk about a win tomorrow. We'll see you then.